This sports social podcast is brought to you by BetVictor, where live streams, smart stats, and in-play betting can help you make your best bet yet. 18 plus, begambleaware.org. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like, maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away. Specifically, the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. Hi, my name is Jonna, and I play football for Chelsea FC and for the Swedish national team. And you are listening to the Blue Day podcast. Hello Chelsea supporters, here at the Blue Day podcast, I am delighted to welcome this individual on the show today. He is a man who 50 years ago was part of the 1971 Cup Winners' Cup triumph against Real Madrid. Plus he made 19 appearances for the club, scoring five goals. Here is Derek Smedhurst. Derek, welcome to the Blue Day podcast. How are you? Very good, Keith. Thanks very much for inviting me. That's absolutely fine. Derek, I just wanted to start off the show uh, with a little bit of research that I conducted this week uh, that I came across that with these achievements that really stood out. So I just wanted to sort of let you know, for me, the significance of, again, having you on the show, but also the significance of what occurred 50 years ago. Is that OK for me to share them? No problem. Fantastic. I'll, I'll deny anything. The fifth. I'm going to plead the fifth. <laughs> <clears throat> no problem. Keith. OK. According to the research, you are the first South African to win a European trophy. You are the first foreign player to score for Chelsea in a European competition. You are the first foreign player to win a European competition with Chelsea Football Club. And lastly, you are the first foreign player to play in a European final for Chelsea Football Club. How about that then? That's not bad for a beginner. (laughs) <laughs> no, that's not bad. that's not bad at all. Derek, I know it was a long time ago, but as I've done with my other guests, I'd like you to take me back all the way to the beginning. Um, who influenced you to become a professional footballer in the first place? Um, I think it was when I was in South Africa, um, you know, growing up in a sporting family, Mornay Duplessis, uh, eighth man for South Africa. His father was a springback rugby player. His mother was a field hockey player. They are all captains, by the way. And um, my dad was an international player with South Africa. My uncle was an international uh, with South Africa, probably the best midfield player South Africa ever had, uh, period. And so knowing this stuff kind of irked me and made me very, you know, joyous, actually. But it was like, right. Uh, I've cut it back to England. When I arrived in England, they wrote uh, six or seven lines about this young South African arriving. Um, They had five lines on the family. You can uh, guess what the other line was, you know, and here's this other guy. 
So anyway, that changed over time. Not that it worried me, but that's the family I grew up in. So sports was there. I was actually heading for first division cricket as well. So, um, but it wasn't uh, professional. And South Africa had gone maybe three years professional. And so now I'm, I'm thinking, hmm, money, money, money. And I went there and spent my youth playing the game, plus surfing. And then what happened was I came out of the army, which I didn't want to go into. I didn't have a choice. And three weeks later, I was in the pros as an amateur. So all the boys from Europe and England and Wales and Scotland had played five games for this pro team, of which we were the youth teams, right? I was in the under-19. I just turned 18. And they hadn't scored a goal in five games. So you do the math. The coach went and said, are you going to continue with this? The amateur coach that was our coach said, are you going to continue with this? Uh, how long? Five games, no goals. Why don't you put these three kids in? And they did just to show off the foreign. They were getting paid a fortune, way more than England. I mean, it was a fortune to get them there because they'd been kicked out of FIFA, you know, South Africa. So there we were, three kids. I'm center forward. Got a couple of guys at inside forward. And I'm going, what? Bam. In 10 seconds, I got a goal. Uh, the guy by the name of Jimmy Cooper from England, two guys talking in the middle. I know what they were saying. I can just envisage it now. Those three kids aren't getting anything. All teenagers, 17 and 18 and, and 19. And there's Jimmy Cooper, the fastest man in the country. And I just blinked at him to move down the line because I'm chipping it over these two who are talking in the midfield, the left back and the left midfield. So they're having a good old chat. And I'm going, boom, he was down the line. I'm going, oops, I better run. And I ran and hit a 25-yard near post up at 19. That was my introduction to the pros as an amateur. I got um, hamburger money, you know. At the end of the night, we won 7-1. The three kids got six goals. I got three. Welcome to the big leagues, Derek. Next game, I got two goals. The next game, I got one goal. The next game, I was benched. The next game, I was gone, you know. <laughs> It took me a long time to figure wow. that out. We were paying a fortune for foreigners. And I was getting hamburger money. And then came the next, uh, the manager of the top team in South Africa, Durban City. And he walked in, knocked on the door. My mum, my dad had just passed. My mum answered the door. He was a boxing promoter. So he knew how to do things. You know, catch a young man's boom, heart in a hurry. Hmm. So he said, now I'll speak to your son, Mrs. Smathurst. She said, come in, Mr. Elliot. And he said, Derek, could you clear the, the dining room table, please? Which I did. It's got this big, huge shopping basket, brown, thick paper. I don't know if anybody knows about those old days. Those things were huge. You know, you go to this grocery store and you just about put everything in the kitchen sink. The in. big brown paper bags, oh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, just hold, hold it, Derek. He turns this thing upside down and out come the biggest notes I've ever seen in all my life. All neatly tied by the back. And I said, where would you like me to, to sign? It was thousands. And I went, let's see, new car, new circle, wax for life. I'm made. Boom, I signed. And that's when my career started in South Africa. And uh, three years later, I'd won four, four uh, titles, major titles. Um, and then I went to Norman Elliott, who had a deal with Chelsea, by the way. He, Chelsea would send him some players who they didn't think was going to get through and make it. But they don't tell them those things, and that's very, very good of them too, because 
but they could go out, get experience, come back, maybe turn into a different type of player with 30,000, 40,000, 25, 50,000 watching these games. And so he said, okay, I've pested him and pested him and pested him. I want to go, you know, just let me go, you know. And what happened was he sent me, knowing the deal was good, I'll be back in three months. All the national press said the same. Um, you'll be back in three months. I said, if I'm back in three months, it'll be with the medal. You know, blah, blah, blah. You know, young kid boasting now. So off I went. I got four weeks in the country to prove my worth. Two weeks were wasted getting me a visa to stay. And I'm walking down the road in my flip-flops in December. I'm going 100 yards and I've got bad news. Now, let's get back, get the leathers on. You know, the le- oh, my goodness. So that was my mentality. Beach bum, you know. So here I am, two weeks to prove my worth. Finally get it. I think they made the political deal, you know, through a few famous um, English uh, actors and writers and all that. I know they did. So they got me that visa quickly. So I played. Can't become a professional for two years. That was the law of the land. Can't become one. That was the hardest part. In uh, my first game, I'm running in mud. I'm a South African boy. You don't play in mud. We play on nice, hard fields with beautiful grass like they do today, right? Brilliant billiard tables. And so about 20 minutes in, my muscles are burning. I've been training in the sea, like running through about six to nine inches of water on the beach where I lived, on South Beach, Durban. And that's how I trained for, for two months. It was out of season, see? And so here I am. I'm aching. My teeth are itching. My eyeballs are scratchy. Everything is like zinging in my head. 20 minutes in this mud, freezing cold. Bam, I hit a 25, 28-yarder in-step drive. It was going about 90 miles an hour. Oh, I just said, that's it. I just clattered one, you know. And a few minutes later, I scored another one. And then third game, I think I scored another goal or two as well in my second reserve game. So that was enough for them to take a look. They took a look at me. And I had to do that two-year thing, became the leading goal scorer for two years in the reserves. They wouldn't play me. Unbeknownst to me, there were half a dozen first division teams who wanted to sign me. No agents in those days. You were your own agent. So, and I would have gone, well, wait a minute. And they were still there. And one actually came in later on and just through Keith Weller spoke to him, Millwall guy, right? Benny Benton. Gally wants you badly. I said, how bad? You know, that was after the, the cup final in Europe. So, that all was another scenario. But that's my introduction to England and getting there. <clears throat> wow, that's a brilliant story. My goodness. Um, just going sort of back to your, your younger days and you aspiring to be a professional sportsman, who was your idols growing up? You mentioned your family and how well they've done in South African sports. I'm assuming were they sort of your idols? Was there any other outside influences that you liked? Yeah, there was one, um, he'd just been to uh, South America, Argentina, actually, with the English national team. And they went on tour of South Africa, Tottenham Hotspurs. Just happened to be my youth team, right? We get these uh, blacky, grey things, comics, and we get in, it's the English First Division, and we get them three weeks later in South Africa. And I put all these teams in, you know, you know those little plugins. I don't know if you ever remember those. Uh, They probably cost a fortune today. But Jimmy Greaves, I'd seen him 
on the movies. We see it on the movies when we, we had no TV in South Africa, zero. So you had to go to the movies, Pathé News would come in and, you know, they'd show five minutes, 10 minutes, and I would see Jimmy sometimes. And then when he came to South Africa, I watched him. He went around five defenders in a 12-yard span, like they were pegs in the ground. Just boom, 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 a circle, you know, a little training session. It was like a training session through nice little cones, you know. And then at the last, he's six-yard box. He dummies the, the goalkeeper. The goalie's gone off. Best goalie in the country. Quite brilliant, actually. And just went, boop, at one mile an hour. And the players were still watching him that he beat. That's how phenomenal it was. And I was up in the stadium as a young boy, and I went, oh, my goodness. That's where I'm going. But I never lost what I had for him. Because to me, he's one of the greatest players I've ever seen. And we got the others, Georgie Best and all the others. Mm-hmm. But the one-touch, two-touch footballer, Jimmy Goods. It's like the Nicholson had said when they won the double in the 1651. Uh, the, the reporter said, what are you going to do next? You know, you just won the double. First team to ever do it. He said, one-touch football. Uh, that was it. You know, that's that's where I was. And Jimmy Greaves was the hero. I mean, I couldn't get him out of my mind. Yeah. He was a fantastic player. As you said, he used to, he, he weren't just a striker. He weren't just a guy that would score goals. He would score all types of goals. And, you know, I've, I've heard fantastic stories about the man himself and what he did as a player. So, yeah, unfortunately, there wasn't many footballers that could follow in his footsteps of what he could do on the pitch. They voted him off the, uh, I think, off the English team. Uh, and you can't say anything about it because England won in 66. They won. So everything that the manager did, and for me, he was a magnificent manager. Worst thing that ever did was he, he, he moved out in 70, you know, in 70. Um, he was brilliant at his assessment, but when he left out Jimmy, it was because of his mouth. It wasn't because he had, it's like, well, you know, but that's how he held the team. You know, he said, this is what I want. You don't give it to me, you're gone. And, you know, Jimmy, well, he had a history of a few things. So, and so did a lot of players. But he was still brilliant. He's just, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally agree. You know, Jimmy Greaves, uh, you know, arguably Spurs' all-time best footballer and very underrated back here in England, in my opinion. I've, I think there's case partly because of there's not a lot of footage that's available of Greaves. I know um, in, in England there was a documentary about the great man himself and his footballing career. And it'd, it'd be great to sort of see more of him, you know, sort of more of his footage when he was at Chelsea as well and when he was at Tottenham. But no, fantastic sort of footage and a, a great story, Derek. Thank you for sharing that. Um, you mentioned you was at Durban City. And then uh, from Durban City, you went to Chelsea. What was going through your mind at that stage when the move came about in 1968 that you was going to go to a different country? And how difficult did you sort of find it the first few months of that particular move? Well, with Drogba, he had the same problem that I had. Drogba was lonely. Family's not there. Friends are not there. He found London to be one of the loneliest cities, megatropolis, you know, uh, in the world. And I went, that's it. 
I was there thanks to Stuart Houston, Johnny Boyle, Alan Hudson. A few of those players just quickly befriended the fellow. And so it, it softened the riot, but there's no family, there's no friends or in digs. Yeah. And if you made enough money, they wouldn't let you buy a house if you were single. This is just the managerial side of everything. It's weird. It's totally benign. And it's got, I couldn't understand it. This is South African. We're out there, outside with our flip-flops, you know, it's outside, like Australia. You know, Nobody goes outside in New Zealand. It's too cold, man. You know, skiing time. So what it is, is that's what it was. It was very, very lonely. And it's quite, it's quite hazardous to a person's uh, professional career sometimes. Jimmy Grease found that out with drink. But, you know, he would have never come back from Italy if he didn't have that problem. He was so good. He was, he was made for Spain and Italy. But he had that problem, and, and they would hammer him in the press because, oh, you're our superstar. You can't go out at night. You've got to go to bed at 6 o'clock in the evening, you know. That's how they were back then. It's just it's the way it was. So, yeah, that was the lonely part of it. It was, you know, I'll get out of digs. I've got to get out of digs. So what do you do? <laughs> three questions here, and you got only three answers. <laughs> so that's, that's what it was, yeah. You've mentioned sort of the teammates such as Alan Hudson and Johnny Boyle. Did you form any other sort of strong relationships in your early part of your career with sort of other Chelsea players? And what were they like with you? In training, you know, did they help you out at all because they knew that you've, you know, you've come from thousands of miles to be at Chelsea? Yeah, they were, they were all, they were all, uh, they were all beneficial to my career. There was only one reason I left Chelsea, and it had nothing to do with any of the players. They were all really beneficial. They encouraged um, all that kind of stuff, you know. So I actually asked for the transfer. Because I wasn't going to stay at the club because of what happened. Something happened, and I can tell you about it later. But um, all those players, I mean, I'm there with Tony Fruin in the reserve team. There's Ken Adam, who was an agent, I think, with Alan Hudson, Rodney Marsh, and a few others. And we're going into uh, Wimpy's, right? We go, this is what happens when you're a 6,000 mile foreigner, a beach bum who's trusting guys, right? So we go in, we have our hamburger. And I'm the last in the line going out. And out goes Huddy. He's paying Gov, pointing to Tony Fern. Tony Fern goes through the cashier, says, he's paying Gov. Then Kenny Adam, the agent, he's paying Gov. And I see three guys hoteling it down the road at 100 miles an hour, right? And I'm going, don't tell me, he's paying Gov. Right? I paid for the four meals. Fine. No problem. I had some money from South Africa. They were lucky. It's the fastest I've seen those three running all my life, including Mr. Hudson and Ken Adam. <clears throat> so, yeah, that was my introduction to guys, you know, because it softens the blow. You had fun. It was okay. It was good. You know what I mean? And it was good. Yeah. So, <laughs> I think that's the first and probably only, ta- only story I'm going to hear of footballers actually going to Wimpy. That, that would never happen in this day and age. Absolutely not. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, fantastic. <laughs> And you mentioned previously that you spent some time in the Chelsea reserve side. What was going through your mind at that stage? Because it took a while for you to make your debut for the club. And you you did make your debut uh, against Burnley in September of 1970. Do you remember much about that game at all? 
It was freezing cold. It was like sleep. I'm the, I'm the guy that from South Africa, you know, the barefooted lunatic running down, walking down the street. I remember that because it was freezing cold and it was one of those games where you knew nothing was going to happen. Both teams, both teams were like that. It was like, oh, what are we doing here? We love this game, right? That's the kind of game it was. And then Burnley, you know, the weather is not, not too great anyway on its best day. So it was freezing cold and not too much movement, even though you're supposed to move to keep warm. It was, it was a dead game. It was like 300 passes. It was like today. 300 passes sideways. Another 1,000 backwards. Yeah. Is anybody going to run forward? I actually got a picture of me in the goal mouth with going for a loose ball. The goalie got it. I went, I don't think I ever got in there. <laughs> That's the kind of game it was. So, and I remembered it well because, you know, it was your first game and everything like that. I'd, I'd been injured for three months in the reserves for an ocular strain. Still ended up being the leading goal scorer for the team. Uh, it was three months out, you know. But uh, I remember the crutches. They gave me crutches and I nearly fell over and broke the other leg. And I just, you know, I was, yeah, Mr. Meadows, take these things. He's ducking these, you know. Oh, <laughs> It wasn't until January of 71 that you scored your first goal for the club. That must have been a bit of a, a huge relief for you, being a striker, to get that first goal behind your belt and hopefully going to progress forward. What happened was I could have had three or four goals that game because there was there were two or three times I'd back, broken through and beaten one, two, three players, taking them on. And welcome to the English mud. Three times in a row, the ball bobbled up when I hit it. And it just went off into Willy Wonka's chocolate factory somewhere up in the, you know, in the shed. And it was three times, but I'd beaten them, got a hold of it, gone past them and hit it. And then the, the next time I said, keep your eye on the ball at all costs. English mud, because, you know, it just churns up on you. And it, it's embarrassed a lot of players. But the, the, the one I got was the hardest of all. The three before, I was facing the target 18, 16, 22 yards out. And I'd already beaten the defenders, only one coming across, which I took the chance to hit it. I wasn't going to take him off. And this one went over my head. I turned, ran by, and hit it. Today, there'll be the dubious golf award, you know. He touched it. I think those laws are ludicrous. We will talk about VAR later. I would, I, I would like yeah. to get your opinion I, I on that later. I punished the ball and I hit it. I did a 180, <laughs> well, actually it was a bit more than that, maybe 250 around and one turn and hit it and it clipped the toe of the defender coming across me about five yards away. He could never get to me. I was already turning. And then boom, it was a little Louie on the top of it, over the top of the goalie who had already died for a supposed low strike. Which never came, but he was going down as it was uh, into the back of the net. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't see it until I saw it on the thing on the you know video. I went, oh, he touched it. <laughs> <laughs> just for clarity, for those uh, listeners that was just wondering, it was Chelsea versus West Brom. Chelsea won the game four one, and that was the game that you scored your first goal for the club. It should have been seven. It should have been said. Yeah, three lose, yeah. <laughs> um, the manager at the time was Dave Sexton. 
what was your relationship like with him? It was fine all the way through until um, one day after we'd beaten uh, Manchester to qualify for the final against Real Madrid. He called John Phillips and myself. John Phillips, by the way, had had a magnificent semi-final both games. And and I thought I'd done well as well. So, you know, and he pulled us aside and said, we're giving you, Chelsea Football Club is giving you half of the the qualification money, the bonus money. And being a South African, you know, in those days, everybody said, yes, sir, no, sir. Your manager up north and in the Midlands, boss or sir. In London, you'd call him by his first name. It was a little different from the South. But it was yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir. You know. And he said, we're giving you half of the bonus, mate. And I'm being a South African. This should be right. I hammered him. I hammered him for five, maybe seven minutes verbally. He didn't have a chance to take a breath. And I just walloped him and walloped him and verbally walloped him. There was nothing dirty about the statements. It was the truth. I said, here's a guy pointing to John. I, I, I set John up because I was going after him afterwards. I said, he was brilliant. Brilliant. Caddy was injured. Peter Osgood was injured. So in we went. We played so well in the first game, he wanted us in the second game. And I'm going, and now you want to give us half the bonus? I figured it was the two younger boys outside of Alan who was young, you know. But Alan was playing brilliantly. So I'm going, and he, he didn't have a chance to say boo. I whacked him and I whacked him. And then I turned to John. Now, it's what, May? Early May, late April. I don't know when it was, yeah. So we haven't seen the sun in eight months. I look over at John and I say, are you going to say anything? Oh, of course not. That's his exact words. I'll never forget him. He was, never mind white from no sun. He was ashen white. He saw his whole football career dying before him as I was hanging Dave Sexton. You know what I mean? Wow. He associated, he's associated now with this assault. <laughs> and at the end of the my statement, Dave just, just looking at me stoically. Like, well, you know, he didn't say anything. And I said, this conversation's over. I'll talk to you later. And I turned and walked away. And John, you know, he, uh, he followed me because he didn't want to stay there with Dave. So... Next year, I start the first two or three games. I was playing my best football ever. And I would have been playing. I know I would have been playing the way I was playing. I would have been playing, playing, playing. But I had something on my mind. And I went in on a Monday morning about the third game. Second or third game, I can't remember. The last game was Arsenal. They beat us 3-0. They won the double that year. And I walked in, I said, boss, do you mind if I talk to you for a couple of minutes? I'm going to be more than two minutes. And I walked in, and I said, do you remember that conversation we had or I had with you? He said, yes. That's why he started me the next season. That's why he brought me on to the final when Ozzy was injured. The second game. And Ozzy shouldn't have really played, but he, I'm glad he did. <laughs> you know, he was, but he was hobbling all the way through. But that's why he put me on. Because of that conversation that took place a couple of weeks before. And I said, now's the time when I walked into his office when I asked if I could speak to him. I said, now's the time for me to let you know about the conversation 
that was it. I'd like to be transferred. And I don't want to leave London. Meanwhile, Keith Weller talked to me about the manager, Barry Benton, wanted me very badly. And I said, Keith, how badly? I'm thinking about the money I lost. Now, I've got to be my own agent. Nobody's your agent back in those days. So he said, very bad. I said, tell him this is what I want. And he agreed to it. I became the best paid player at Millwall. And I don't think I could have gotten to that level of pay with Chelsea for a long time. And being Aussies there, you know, the whole, they've got some brilliant players there. Mm. I'm the understudy. So I thought, right. Staying in London, just made 15, 20 times the amount that I lost. And my salary is bonuses, play or not. You know, the bonuses for points and all that. They were big bonuses. They, they, that's what they caught them on the hook, you know. Go win, go get a point. <laughs> There's your salary. So it, it worked out financially for me, but there was a cost to it, you know, Chelsea football. But, but I wasn't going to stay, not unless they made the adjustment. And I asked him, why didn't you go to your board? I knew it was the board decision. It wasn't his. He's the emissary of bad news, you know. And so it, what happened is he, he's, he's just said, uh, he just shook his head like, you know, no. And I said, okay. And it worked out for me personally, although I ended up playing midfield. I'm an inside forward. I've always been one. Striker, I can play center forward. Because, you know, most, most guys can, but um, I've got speed, so I can play center forward. I've got quick turn speed. Uh, I was an inside forward. So he put me on the outside right where Keith used to play. And then, oh, another 40 yards that way and another 40 yards back. And it's a, I said, that's not me. I'm a 5 to 10, 15 yard explosion man. Right. But that's so if you want to play, so I'll play. And the money was excellent. So. It worked out well for you in the end. Yeah. yeah. The 1970-71 season, Chelsea were in the European Cup Winners' Cup for the for the first time. You made your debut in the competition against Club Bruges. Do you have many memories of that particular game or those particular two games against Club Bruges? Yes. You know those horns they had in South Africa in the World Cup? Vuvuzelas, I think uh, they're called. That's well, that, it. That's, they didn't invent those things, man. The guys at Bruges <laughs> and things like that. And Bruges was a very, very tight environment. You know, if you're having a cigarette, they will pass you the match. It was so close. They were right in your face. And they had these noisy things. And you couldn't hear anything going on. In fact, if the whole team had left and you were facing north and they left into the locker room itself, you wouldn't have known. It was so noisy. But I was in that environment of European thing. You know what I mean? You're going to, to Greece and it's, it's hot and uh, that kind of stuff. It was so noisy. There were guys two steps away from yelling at each other. And we're going, huh? And yeah, I can't. I got my hand in my ear and my ear. He's got his hand. Oh, I can't hear a word you're saying. Just get on with the game. That's all we did. We got on with the game. But talking wasn't possible. Brilliant. <laughs> So loud, that was so loud, unbelievable. Yeah, I, I don't know whether they were, uh, I don't know. It was just like horns, man. They were coming right at you, and the stadium was like right here in your face. It wasn't a huge stadium, it was nice, very tight, you know. So that's what I remember. 
outside of the game itself. I couldn't hear a thing. And that bothered me big time. And I'm going out and running up, you know. But it wasn't a game that was remembered. The next game at Stamford Bridge was, yeah, was remembered. I know that. That was a Chelsea. Was brilliant that night. But the Bruges thing, noisy. <laughs> <laughs> After that comeback against Club Bruges, did you personally have an inkling that in this competition, Chelsea could have a good chance to win it at that stage or was it later on in the rounds? The, the, what it was is we were the underdogs of everything. What had we won before? Chelsea. We've got individual, uh, really brilliant individual players, but they were clicking. Game by game by game, they were clicking as a one-touch, two-touch football team. This is the essence of brilliance at the end of the day. Uh, if you're doing that, everybody else is running. Your team, their team. So, that, and you're sitting there, and as we went through the ranks, this round, that round, that, you know what I mean? It was getting smoother and smoother and smoother. And everybody's getting the ball, it's just going, I'm not free. <laughs> Ball's gone. And then you're, you're relying on people like Hudson and, and Charlie Cook, Keith Well, you know, Weller and Ozzy and who can turn on dimes and beat people, creating some more space. Boom, the ball was going. There was no holding on to the ball unless you had to, which is the essence of being brilliant. There's no other way around it. Chelsea played Manchester City in the next round of that competition, the 14th of April, 1971. You scored the crucial goal in the first leg of that game. Describe to the listeners how significant this was for you personally as a footballer and also for the club. Okay, I'm going into a semi-final when a country I left said I'd never make it. Openly, verbally, coaches, managers, players, uh, reporters. And I'm going, I ain't coming back without the medal. Remember, that's what I said. And the one guy said, Gary Player said that when he left South Africa. He hadn't won everything in South Africa, but he went to the world and won just about everything. Well, he did win everything. And that's his comment he made. In other words, he's not coming back without the medal. It so happened. That's the way it worked out. But I'm in this game. I'm going, we're here, Derek. We're the thing you dreamed about. We're with the club that you didn't think you'd be at. Because there was another club that was interested, but that was in Scotland. So I just took a, a up rocket into space, into heaven, in the difference between Chelsea and the other team, Hibernian. And oh, yeah. that didn't pan out. Boom, Chelsea pans out. Two years later, after two years of having to be an amateur, Dave Sexton wouldn't play me uh, and let them see if I could play, right? Because that's me. I'm gone. I'm an amateur. I can walk. And I can go back to South Africa for free. So here I am, semi-final, with some of the best players in the world covered. And if you ask me, what does it feel like? A kid in a candy store with no money. And everybody wants to buy me what I want. That's what I was like. And, and it's like, it was the hardest goal, I think, that I'd ever taken. Because it came over my right shoulder from the right side. I can't remember if it was Davy Webb or who was it. I can't remember. Um, 
It came over the top of my right shoulder like a wide receiver running to the left. And you've got to look back to the right because Tony Brooks was right behind me one step and two others were coming in. I, I can see it in my head. And then over it comes over my right shoulder and I'm just about to be nailed by Mr. Book. He's going to hit me. And I just went one touch, no backswing, side footer into the corner, 10 miles an hour. Mr. Corrigan, huge dude. He nailed me one game in that season. I couldn't walk for a week. His knee hit me in the thigh, in a dead leg, you know, oh, ugh. But we hit everything out of him that night too. And what happened was all the high balls he was taking, the hard ones, the quick ones, he's very quick for a big man, very quick. And a, a soft little side footer to the far post while I was going left, the ball was going right. He was finished. And, and that's what one reporter actually explained it that way. And I said, that's very good. You should have been a player. <laughs> but that was my introduction to I can do this thing. You know, and I've still got the, the shocking awe of what's to come a week later with Mr. Sexton, but that's okay. Everything worked out, like you said. It's good. That goal made it 1-0 in the first leg. The second leg, Chelsea won again 1-0 through an own goal. So we was off to play Real Madrid in the final. What were your emotions leading up to that game against Real Madrid? I was still trying to work out where my goal was offside. <laughs> what came over from Johnny Boyle? I scored more goals from John Boyle than I think many individual ever. Both of the Rowdies in America and, you know, it's Chelsea, but it came over. We three Russians, you know, on the line and the ref, and they'd be going, didn't even argue because he didn't know. No, we still can't find it, even on the videos we look at. It, it's, he's offside clearly. The, the announcer said, No, I'm fast. I wasn't offside. By the way, it hit the defender's head. And I wasn't offside when he hit the ball. You know what I mean? And he's sitting there going, ah, Okay. <laughs> That's right, yeah. But working up to the game, you know, it's just like the kid in the candy store, man. Yeah, yeah. Let's get to Athens already. Got some heat. We're going to have a hot day, a hot night. Derek's going to be comfortable. Yeah. And, and Aussie came off, actually. Injured. I was the only guy looking down at Sexton when, he, when I knew that he had to make a change in the 70th, 71 minutes. I looked at him like, you know, and it's like, <laughs> and he said, come on, get on. I think he did it from relief. <laughs> mm. But that's, that was good, yeah. No, kid in the candy store. I was like uh, Tigger, you know Tigger? Yes. Yeah. That was me. Let's get there quickly. When did you know that you was going to be in the squad for that return game? Because the first game was won all. Real Madrid scored late on, so the competition was decided for a replay two days later, on the 21st of May, 1971. When did you know that you was going to be in, in the squad for that game? Well, they had some injuries prior to the both games. And then the second game, obviously, they had more injuries. Johnny Hollins, for example. He, he couldn't. He, and there were others. And so and I think that pressure of me and Mr. Sexton a week or two earlier added to that. And, and that's okay, because... What it was is he's in between no midfielders. By the way, Dave Sexton never put a forward too many times. One sub, remember? Only one. Yeah. Yeah. He never put too many strikers on the bench. Ever. 
I can't remember him doing it once, but he must have done it sometime. But it was always a midfielder who could play defender or striker. Uh, listen, uh, a guy like Johnny Holland, right? He can go uh, play. Baby Webb could do the same. So here we are. He's getting injuries. Ozzy's injured. He was injured in the first game. He was, I, I didn't think he was going to play. Uh, I don't think he thought he was going to play. But, you know, Sexton is pressurized here. This is, we've got another chance at this thing. So, and, and in the end, you know, you've got the goal. Here we go. <laughs> so things worked out good. And I, here I am. He's put me in there. I think I found out, I might have been the middle of the, the Thursday, I think. Thursday evening. Because, you know, you hope that this guy gets better and then Harry comes up and says, uh-uh, you can't play. So then that's when... <clears throat> you mentioned you know, the cup. Sorry, I was just going to ask. You mentioned a couple of times about Osgood being injured and he had to come off. And you've mentioned sort of the, the pressure that Chelsea was under in regards to looking to win the trophy. Do you think Dave Sexton was perhaps pressured from other influences that he had to keep Osgood in the team? So whether it was from the ballroom or from Osgood's teammates, do you believe that or is that more of a myth that was going round at that time? It's not a myth because Ozzy could play better than most people on one leg. And he did. Yeah. You know, when he when he puts his the strikes into the back of the net there, the second game is the and you sit there and he turns on a dime, he doesn't need a lot of running Ozzy. He works hard. All strikers work hard. You can't be a good striker. You can't be a good striker if you can't get away from defenders and find space. You just can't. And I had one guy at Millwall says, you don't go in, you, your, your shirt's white, your shorts are white. I'll give you an example. This is the classic. Your socks are white. And they said, everybody else is muddy. I said, that's because they can't stay on their feet. And I, that elite, that released that kind of a question, right? <laughs> it just released it back to him. He said, oh, I never thought of that. And I said, by the way, goal scorers, I'm not scaredy cats. You can't score goals unless you're bold and you're brave. Because you're going to take hits whether you like it or not. And if you get your shot off, they're not going to give you a foul. Because you've got your shot off. I've never seen anything come from after the fact. They're going to hit you. They're going to make you pay because they one blink of an eyelid behind the, the play. And so you'll get your strike off. You might miss because you don't want to end up in hospital. And Ozzy could play on a stick a two by four and strap it to his one leg, turn around and fit. This is Ozzy. He can play on a dime. He worked very hard. All strikers do. But he doesn't have to. He, he can just receive it into him as soft. It's like he's catching a marshmallow, right? And it's just boom, bam, ball's gone. His technique is beautiful. He's the guy I used to watch when I was in the reserve. Was he the best striker that you played with throughout your career? Best finisher I've ever seen. And the only reason he didn't make England that many times was because they wanted people to run. It's always bothered me that English created this game and they mentally disturbed as managers. Hmm. They just, you know what I'm saying? But so Alf Ramsey changed that. And Bill Nicholson with the one touch, two touch, one touch, two touch, that kind of stuff. And then it goes off into La La Land. 
keep the ball. They can't score while you've got the ball. Plus, if we keep it all the time, we can't score. We've got to go for it, you know. And that's Ozzy. Ozzy, he was pressurized to play him 100%. Because uh, he also knew that Ozzy, you know, on a bad day physically, can do something in one second. He wasn't going to trail and run all over the place. He couldn't. His ankle was bad news. It was, mm. I'm going, take the pill, Ozzy. Take the, <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, it was horrible, actually. In the second game, we end up beating Real Madrid 1-0. Describe to us the feeling amongst the team, amongst the boys at the final whistle and in the changing rooms uh, You know, after winning this competition. I'm sure the champagne was flowing for many hours that night. I don't know. I wasn't there. I was all over the place. <laughs> I told you those names would be... Uh, okay. Yeah, well, you know what? The underdogs won. We were totally the underdog. We're talking about the greatest team the world's ever seen. Yeah. They might have been at the end of their reign, but you couldn't tell them that because they weren't at the end of their reign on those two nights. They were buzzing all over the place. The score was flowing everywhere, but they couldn't break down Chelsea. They wanted to win that competition just as badly. Bad. and yeah. Yes, because the old guard was going out and the new was coming in. And they didn't, you know, you never know if you're going to win another one for a while. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, with the new players. and But they weren't playing, they were playing brilliantly. So, got fast players moving the ball around. But Chelsea didn't get broken down. Once they got beat somewhere, there was another one coming in with a blue shirt. And we dived in very few times. Which means if we had a, we would have been roasted. The essence of being a bad defender is diving in. I got him. Whoops. No, I don't. You know, these great players can turn with full control and knowledge of how far you are from the ball. There's no chance in there. They throw you a little dummy and boom, they're gone. So Chelsea never did that too much. And it was like they couldn't break down the midfield. They had to go longer with their passes. Very uncommon to them. It wasn't a common thing. So at the end of the day, they were physically getting more and more tired. Chelsea was Chelsea was getting more and more invigorated in both games. And by the way, we're playing in the uh, Greek heat, mm. hard grounds. This is well suited to Real Madrid. Period. End of story. You know, I'm the only guy in Chelsea's squad who knows how to play on hard grounds. I grew up with them, and so when the ball bounces. It's going over your head if you don't control it. So turn early and run because there's no other way. But Chelsea didn't get broken down. In the ranks, they never did. So, was this triumph arguably your finest moment as a footballer? In the status of um, winning championships, yes. And the height of Chelsea's, you know, we were Chelsea's first European champions. Can't take it away. Um, you take it away, you can't do anything else but say thank you. Mm-hmm. You set the thing rolling the new money man that came in later you know the owner and then boom now they're getting used to it or more yeah just want to mention a couple of names that you've sort of mentioned to to us earlier John Boyle what was he like to play with you know you've mentioned that his delivery you obviously enjoyed it what was he like as a footballer I wouldn't want to play against him so I used to go up to Wishaw where his mum and dad and he grew up, John grew up. 
And he was very gracious to me in that because otherwise I'd be staying in London in the summer. <clears throat> yeah, very few friends done, blah, blah, blah. Attending too many uh, Rolling Stones uh, concerts in Hyde Park. <clears throat> I sat, I think it, it felt like two miles away in the oak trees where they were and that kind of thing. So you get lonely, right? So John Boyle sensed that and I went off to Spain on holiday with, with Stuart Houston, Tommy Baldwin, Tommy Baldwin's friend, John Boyle, you know, myself. So they invited me, which was good. So I'll probably go with them. And then when I get back, he invited me to go to Wishaw. Then little did I know Wishaw, you know, the true Scotsmen are there. And here I am. I'll tell you a little story because I stayed there, for, we stayed there for a week, I think, on two or three occasions. There's a big game in Wishaw. The losers are buying drinks, dinner at the local pub. End of story. Here I am, very well tanned, and my tans are really brown. Johnny introduces me as the, his friend from Pakistan. And can he play? Yeah, yeah he can play. No problem. So it's this pub against that pub. The loser will come to their pub, the winner's pub, and buy drinks, buy dinner all night long, period. So I don't know how we, we won about 8 nil, 8 one, 2 or something like that. And I scored it five or six of them. And then they came up to me and said, okay, this is the losing team now. Who's the ringer? <laughs> There's something wrong here. Because <laughs> these are good amateur players, right? These are not. So we started laughing, the both of us, laughing our heads off. And he said, meet Derek Smethurst, Chelsea Football Club. Right. You thought what was coming is the war. Scotland against England, just throw a few South Africans in and mush them up, you know. Actually, we were laughing so much, everybody on that field. Uh, we decided we'll pay for each other's and this is good. Okay, so it was really, that was how I spent my summers while I was at Chelsea with John Boyle and his family, who were very gracious. And they still remember it, actually. Some of them that are still alive. Uh, I remember it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fantastic story. Thank you for sharing yeah. that with us. So they could not believe it. I was so tanned. I was South African tan. It was like, Brown, brown, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. Alan Hudson, midfielder. You, you know, you've you've mentioned him sort of previously. What sort of kind of midfield? Excuse me. What kind of midfielder was he to you? Was he arguably one of the best midfielders that you played with? And you know, why do you think that he might not have got as many caps for England as he should have done? It goes back to the managers I spoke of before, the mentally disturbed ones, okay? They want runners. I can go to the Olympics for that, okay? It's, this is how, and they're still out there, these managers. They don't change. They don't adapt. They just don't adapt to the game. Well, you know, worked on this game. No, you're playing different players. And you need to accommodate these players because if you don't, they're going to chew you up, spit you out, and take all the points. And you've now got the brilliant players from around the world 
not just in England or Scotland or Wales now, and, and beautiful fields. So here's Alan. We played in the reserve team. The second I pass and the ball, he plays it back, he's gone. I'm going, right, got a one-touch football. That's, my, that's how I grew up. One-touch, one-touch, boom, 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 like that. I played rugby. I was the smallest guy on the field, so I know how to get away from somebody in a hurry. You know, so when I saw him playing in the reserves, it was one touch, two touch, turn away, touch, 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 touch. If I don't run into position, I'm not getting the ball. Alan knew where to put the ball. That's in the reserves when we played together. And then he got his break. We He got his break at Tottenham Hotspur, if my memory serves me right, because there were two of us who were going to start that game. And somebody else, like I said, defender or midfielder, and Alan wouldn't have been a, a player to go in there because he's a mid attacking midfielder in his Chelsea days. Mm. And so what happens is it's going to be him or me, depending on the injury, blah, blah, blah. It was Alan. So that's where he made his break. My break came a little later. Um, but when he got on the field, he looked like he'd been there 20 years. He was 18 years old, you know. Touch, touch, control, touch, control, touch. When Alan Hudson didn't hold on to the ball long, you're about to lose the game, the other team. That's where he needed those players running in and out of defenders into holes because he would hit it. Uh, there was another player like him that wasn't as great as Alan, but more flamboyant was Rodney Marsh. And what Alan, see, when Rodney Marsh looked at me at Tampa Bay, I knew I wasn't getting the ball. When he looked away, I was getting the ball. That's Alan Hudson. No defender can work that out because they're following the eyes, like quarterbacks, right? The guys that get hit, that hit quarterbacks are, are following the eyes. They know if he looks right, he's going left, that kind of thing. Alan Flair was that, Alan Hudson was that kind of player. And every time he held the ball, goals were hard to come by. Every time he released it early. But you know, his manager should have done that for him too, helped him on there. Don't hold on to the ball. We score goals all the time. But we didn't have film. They didn't do films in those days. 16 millimeter would come back four weeks later. You know, I've developed and saw nobody looks at it at that point. So he's probably, yeah, he's a magnificent player. One he, final player that I'd like to mention, uh, he was the captain for Chelsea in the triumph, was Ron Harris. You know, um, all-time appearance holder for Chelsea. What was he like? In, in, in especially in the dressing room? He didn't say much, actually. He just looked at people and said, come on, man, let's go. That was Ron. Okay, Ron wouldn't drive. Somebody else always drove it. I don't know what it is today, but that's the kind of player he was. Ron Harris, we went on a tour to Barbados. Davy Webb and I are in a room. It's three o'clock in the morning. It's dark. It's, we've been out drinking, having, you know, dinner, all that stuff. And I see the shadow sitting in the seat. I'm going to give you a Ron Harris character. Uh, and I'm going, somebody's in the room and they're going through our stuff and stealing, right? So I'm going to, oh, there's a South African, half, three quarters drunk out of his mind. Three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, seeing somebody sitting in a seat six, six feet away. And I'm going, I've got to get to this angle to come out and wallop it. I can't be sliding on my back. You know, that kind of thing's in my mind while I'm seeing this shadow. And then so this shadow sees me move. It says, come on, Dale. Let's go down. Let's go get something to eat. 
It's just four o'clock in the morning. Bola, this is his nickname. Ron, it's four o'clock in the morning. What are you doing in my room? Baby Webb is snoring Z's out of there. You could, oh, loud, wood chopper, you know. And I'm talking to, to Ron Harris. I finally find out who it is before I was going to pop it. I was a boxer as a kid. You know, I, I used to box. So I'm going to kind of pull him over to the left and get across and cross him. And he says, we've got to get down. I'm hungry. Just go. He wouldn't go down on his own. This is Ron Harris off the field. I said, you ever do this to me again, I'm going to smack you. I'm going to knock you out. And he knew I would. But I wouldn't. But I mean, you know, I'm just, just don't do that. I think you're somebody going through my stuff. And then it dawned on me, who gave you the key to get in? The door was locked. He wouldn't tell me. It is Ron Harris on the field. I never saw him hit a 50-50 tackle. He'd let you go by thinking you've won the day. He was so good at this. It was unbelievable. He would feign a little move away from you deliberately and then wallop you as you were going by. And good luck with that one because Merry Christmas. He didn't go to the ball. He went through the ball. And in those days, you know, they, the referees knew what a through the ball tackle was. Otherwise, we'd be playing, playing free or something. Yeah. Yeah, you, you'd see some of these old videos on old games. You oh. certainly wouldn't be able to do that now. No. No. Wind. You shouldn't. You found your yellow card. You know, it's like, what are you doing? They're messing the game up. And I think they're mm. doing it on their own. They, they're doing calling of rules that seems to affect the feelings of the player. But he feels upset. Okay, I'll give you that. It's just really weird to me what's going on on the field, you know. Mm. Yeah, that's Ron. Ron is very quiet, then off the field. He wouldn't go down on his own. And you look at his game and he hits players, you can't say he's scared. He's just... Like he wouldn't drive, you know. It was that there was? I'm sitting there going, well, okay. He whacked me on the forecourt. We used to be five sides on the forecourt. He whacked me on the forecourt. Welcome to the team, Derek. Kind of thing, right? When I made my first appearance. So he wasn't banking on the South African thing. So you know, 20 seconds later, he gets the ball over by the brick wall. I don't know why the managers let us play there anyway, and I hit him. Well, I hit him. Bang. And he went flying into the wall. Fortunately, he got his hands up. He didn't lose his face. And I turn around thinking, there's Ron Stewart there and there's Dave Sexton there and I'm in for it, right? I'm going to get the right hand of fellowship right out of the place. And they're both laughing their heads off. I'm going, all right. You okay, Buller? Yes, okay. After that, it was good friends. You know, we were good friends. And I'm saying, well, what it took to get there. <laughs> Brilliant. That's yeah, off the field, very quiet. A couple of months after the Cup Winners' Cup triumph in this 1971-72 season, you left the club to join Millwall, as, as you've mentioned. Um, you've already mm. sort of described in detail already, obviously, how, how the move came about and your thoughts on it. But just sort of to clarifying the situation when the when the move came about was you more relieved the fact that you was able to get away from this situation and concentrate on your career what were your thoughts going through your mind at that stage sort of 
between leaving Chelsea and joining Millwall? Of course, well, I would have stayed at Chelsea for as long as they wanted me, right? Had this issue not arisen. And when you look at the numbers, 19 games, a goal every three and a half games, what could have been is not going to be. There were some players who played 10 games, never scored, but kept playing. Some players, it's just the way it is. It's, I, I call it manager favoritism, not result favoritism. They don't think that way. They didn't back then. Some of them don't now. So I had moved with a fresh move because of what happened. It wasn't I was forced out on the logistics of it. Every three and a half games, I'm scoring goals. How many players can do that? So then I'm thrown into the Millwall thing at midfield and I'm going, and I used to tell Benny, because he's been around South Africans, you know, he knows them from Charlton. And he's going, well, what do you think we should do today, Dale? He would come up and ask me, I said, well, get another 15 players in here, you know, you could ask them. He wouldn't. He would always come to me. And I said, do this, do that. He said, are you sure? I said, don't ask me again, Ben. Take advice. Because that's the kind of relationship we had, right? I would say straight out, he would answer, he would want to know. I said, by the way, that right midfielder you've got, put him up front, inside forward, Martin Peters. You're the guy who said I played like him. I went, nobody plays like Martin. He's brilliant. You know, and I'm sitting there going, now you stick me out on the right wing. I'm not Keith Weller. He's brilliant as well. <laughs> That's the relationship I had. And, and I stayed in that mindset because if I didn't, you know, I would have, right midfield thing, I would have gone. But he let me run sometimes and then I had fun. You know, go inside holes, come back out of the forward line. And that's actually, we had players who could play. Barry Bridges was there too. He, he was a good player, you know. So that was my environment. That's how I liked it. Mm. That's what kept me sane, by the way. And the people there, the fans, they either love you or they hate you, but they tell you. And I love that. I, I love that. They'll tell me you're my enemy so I can prepare. <laughs> but... They, you know, I just, I had to learn a new language, by the way, you know. Mm. Go rhyming slam, man. Yeah. I did that in a hurry. So. Do you still use it now? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to confuse somebody out of comes. Oh, yeah. I said, treat me right and I'll tell you. <laughs> you never forget. Absolutely. Um, Derek, I'd like to talk about the current state of football now. You know, fast forward, and I've asked this question to all, all my guests so far, and I know you've mentioned it tad briefly already on this interview. Um, your thoughts on VAR? Somebody had asked me that on Facebook. And I said, there's nothing wrong with VAR, but the people who run it, they are what is wrong. I said, if you're going to do this thing, don't sit and wait for three minutes to make a decision you're looking at because it's based on somebody's feelings. You know, feelings are a wonderful thing, but they can destroy everything in its way if they're not controlled. And that's why. How do people sit for three minutes sometimes? It feels, it feels like eternity. And you can't come to a decision. Now the ref's got to run. I'm waiting for one of them to pull a muscle. I really am. You know, <laughs> it would break down all of the tension of what was wrong with the thing. You see, the thing is good, but it's not managed right. What it is is if the ball is still flowing, until it's dead, take a look. 
because it is dead. You're going back to the place where it happened, and then you're going to have a goal kick or an offside. Don't stop the play. Number one, they've got it right in the NFL, just to a point that they're very good at. It. You've got X amount of seconds. If it's not, and the decision that was made on the field stands unless you can categorically prove 100% it's not. And another thing with the offside, and I've always thought this as long as I've been playing, was there needs to be daylight between players for this decision to be offside. There's clarity. If you see daylight between the players, and I mean if he's got one ankle and it stops daylight, like that, there should be no offside. If there's daylight, offside. You don't need a counsellor, a lawyer, a VAR, bar, bar, where are you, bar? You know, it's like that kind of deal. So, and all of this um, professional fouls, basketball stopped it with free throws. This game can not just be destroyed by stopping all of this rubbish where you slow players down by professionally stopping them, right? And so it becomes 10 times harder now to score. What it is, is give them a 22-yard strike, no wall, after X amount of fouls on your team. Because one team can just break down the game of soccer, period, by doing all this defensive professional fouling thing. So, foul. After X amount of fouls by the team, collectively, this is how baseball, um, basketball solved the entire problem of the physical getting in the way, you know, in the ribs, elbows, everything like that, is 22-yard strike. No wall. They've got to be on the outside of the deep and spread outwards. Okay, I figure you'll get one goal in three strikes. Yeah. It's going to just excite everybody. You're not destroying the game, but you're also going to destroy is the professional fan and the commitment to stop the player because they played well. That's what bugged me all my life. It's so simple. It's basketball were, were in that stage where the great players were beating people and the big boys were just, bang, you know, professional fouls. So they solved it. And you're off. You foul out. You got, what, how many players on the bench now? Between Five, eight, nine, eight. Some, sometimes now they have 10 to 11. And so you got you can only put three on. It's sheer lunacy. It's it's just something. It's just it's stupid. So if they come in off, let them go back on. Put players on and off. And why is there a third official, a fourth official? Why do we have to stop the game and watch somebody walk off? I don't see the rule that says you have to run off. Is it there? I was sleeping. So. And then they get threatened. I'll add on another 30, 40 seconds. You can almost see the lips moving. They're making their own rules, the officials. That fourth official should be changing the players. And no, and there will be no exchange until the one is off by the fourth player. They've got telecommunications. Hello, he's on. 24, boom, boom, whatever. Why can't they do that? The game will never stop them. It's all that kind of stuff. It's messed up. And, you know, the guy walks off, says, oh, there's no rules. No, but I'm going to put 30 seconds on. You broke the rule, ref. You either make the rule to accommodate or you've broken it, referee. And there's a lot of that kind of stuff going on. But I say daylight on offside. 
you got you got to be a blind man because daylight's easy to see today with these cameras and digital. It's so easy to see. It's easy to see when they play. It's an interesting concept, absolutely, and I think that eventually they will get it right because I think the technology will be brought in to have enough cameras, as you say, like the NFL, how they sort of do it. There is enough money in football now to get that right. And the amount of errors that have been made now, it's costing clubs points. It's costing you know fans. It's causing stress. It's causing stress to the coaches. And a lot of the players now, especially this season, have come out and said they don't know what's offside anymore. They don't know what the rules are anymore. I'm watching it. Keith, I'm watching it like you, and I don't know. He's got 30 seconds to prove your point. If you can't prove your point, this, whatever you call stands. It's so simple. And, okay, the dubious goal, my first game. <laughs> there shouldn't be such a thing. Okay, what do they do in baseball? Forced errors. What are they doing? And if I'm using the American games because they got it right. Um, forced errors. Tennis, forced errors. Unforced errors. And if I strike a ball and it hits three guys, it's my goal. I forced the error. So you go forced error, forced error, but that's going to look bad on my resume. That's why I passed the ball backwards. So my resume looks good. And I give it to my friend Harry over there and he hits it to Larry. And Put it this way. If you didn't strike the ball to begin with, there would be no errors. So because you've made the case in point. How simple is the thing? Right. Unforced error. You knock a ball back to your goalie. Nobody's putting pressure on you. The ball goes astray because it's a rotten pass. Things like that are so easy. But they don't want that. It's looking bad for the game. They're all going to look good on That's paper. Right. That's no. right. It has, to, it has to look perfect. And unfortunately, football going down the years, even when you was playing to the 80s to the 90s, it's never been perfect. The only thing that hasn't changed is they've never got it right. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. A couple more questions, Derek, before I do let you go for today. Chelsea this season, uh, have you seen much of them where you're living now? And what have you made of what, how they've done this season? I'm tired of watching players play sideways and backwards. And they have a way to go forward. There's a big, big difference about first forward. Can't go forward. It's usually because there's no runs. And we've got laziness. So we're going to go sideways. We're going to look good. That comes back to that sheet of my passes. It's selling a player over in Europe now. We got well, 3,000 passes on They top. look at the stats and see how many times they've they passed. Yes. No, what they don't do is how many balls did you hit forward on target? How many balls did you hit behind defenders on target? And, and was the... That's the kind of thing I will not watch. I don't care if it's Chelsea or anybody. I just look at it and I go, I got other things to do. <laughs> I'm serious, yeah. Yeah, um, there's been many times this season, last year, oh Christ, even five years ago. Winger's making a run. He's beat the offside trap. Midfielder's out of look because somebody's coming towards him. Oh, no, we'll pass it back. Yeah. They're playing too safe. It relieves responsibility, and I'll tell you what's dying in this game, heading. Heading is dying. And near post and far post runs, dying. We don't see them anymore. Once in a blue moon. Well, that was brilliant, wasn't it? It was a natural occurrence when I played. I think in regards to your um, 
statement about heading. I think heading's been sort of a, a lot of it's been brought forward because of the issue of ex players having dementia. You know, it, it's been sort of brought into the spotlight. And I know the FA at this stage of recording are looking into ways to improve. The, especially the grassroots game and academy football about terms of heading. And I know there was um, somebody did a proposal about scrapping heading in football, which a lot of people uh, have mixed feelings on it. I, of course, have I've got mixed feelings on it myself. And But as you say, when it comes to near post runs and far post runs, I can't remember a team in this modern era that do it well anymore. No. They used to. No, yes. Defenders used to do it. They would come in, boom, nobody's marking it. He's a defender. So you, you see, the thing on, on heading is we played with leather balls. Hmm. They had a lovely, big, what? The laces. Remember the yes. big uh, Now, there was a player I played with said, how would you like it today, Smith? The crosses he was talking about. I'd say, turn the lace away, please. And all the young boys are going, have you... Because they, when I used to say it, we were playing with lighter balls, still heavy in today's game. Today's game, the balls are light. So the occasion for all of what's happened to these unfortunate guys with their injuries is getting less and less just by the bringing forward of a lighter ball. And, and it's like one day they're going to give medals to everybody who turned up and play without a ball. Oh, that was a lovely goal. What did you just do? I just hit it to me in the back and I hit it in there. Oh, okay. Everybody back. No ball now. You can't do that. It's the occasion. We all knew the trouble, although it got lighted later on to its extent, fullest extent, because some players were having problems that weren't diagnosed early. But now when they look back, they've had the problem. I had, I scored one third of my goals, 150 goals with head. So the ball got lighter and lighter. Today, the ball, I'd love to hit one of those balls now. Mm. Man, you know, they, they didn't do it. There was nothing protecting those balls when I started. That's right. In fact, like a Matisse still there, there were a ball here. You know, I'm fine over here. One eye moved across to the wrong side over there. Today it's, but it's still a problem. It's yeah. And you can't destroy the game to solve the problem. Now you have a bigger problem. I don't know if that makes sense. No, that 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 statement just there, I think that sums it up perfectly. Absolutely. I'll make the occasion worse by solving what was a little lesser. Hmm. Still very big for the players who were injured. I'm not saying anything about that. It's not what I'm saying. Those guys aren't very unfortunate. It messes their whole life up. Now I've got a son with William Syndrome, never spoken one word in 41 years. So I know that kind of trouble. I live with it every day. But you have to solve it. You know, take care of it. Yeah. That's what the... Man, they're still having cups of tea with scotch in it, I think. Uh, I'm talking about the FA. Yeah. <laughs> Derek, final question on what... In my opinion has been one of the fascinating no, no, interviews. No, no, no. I'm so I'm only seventy. Uh, okay. No, it honestly, it's been fan, absolutely fantastic. How do you look back on your Chelsea career? I wish very much that it hadn't happened the way it happened when I left. 
My decision was a right decision. What Chelsea did was not right for two players. And both of us never told the team. I think if we told the team, they would have, they would have gone ballistic. Hmm. Because all teams do when they hear that stuff. And so it's unfortunate I didn't extend it because I was playing that my last season that just begun very well. And that was my goal. But hey, you know, and a manager that didn't want to fight for us. And I, I can understand that to the point because it's his job. You know, it might have become a problem if he goes in and picks a fight with the directors. So it's not a, he was doing what Dave Sexton did. But I had alternatives and I took them. So, and that's the sad thing. Yeah. So, but they're still, you know, that European Championship, nobody else can win that one for Chelsea. Absolutely <laughs> not. And for this, for this interview to, I celebrate, you know, at the end of the day, this is a, a triumph. 50 years since yep. Chelsea first won the Cup Winners' Cup. And Derek, I just want to say on behalf of Blue Day Podcast and also Chelsea fans that are going to be listening to this for years to come, I just want to say thank you very much for your time today and for taking us back all those years ago and sharing us your memories and stories. I absolutely appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, Keith. It's been thank an absolute you. pleasure. Derek, thanks very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Podcast Network. Let me give you a big Labor Day surprise. Most people think if we all exercise the same and eat the same, we'd all look the same. And let me tell you why that's wrong. Your body is unique and your metabolism is unique. I'm Lacey Green, and I'm a super trainer at Body. That's B-O-D-I dot com. And you can't see me, but I don't look like your average personal trainer. I'm curvy, and I'm proud of it. So I created a program for beginners only on the Body app to show people like us how to get incredible results and be our version of happy and healthy. This isn't just workout videos. It's people like you and me. It's community. It's incredible trainers. It's easy to follow nutrition and mindset experts to help you reduce stress and just feel better. And you can get started with my new program called For Beginners Only. Now, here's the big surprise. If you go to body.com right now, that's B-O-D-I.com, not only can you get everything Body has to offer at 50% off with an annual membership, you'll also get an additional 20% off, but only during Labor Day weekend. Let's do this together. Go to body.com. That's body with an I.com.